Our Bible reading for today is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 17. Let me read it for us. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus... The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there's this special kind of satisfaction that comes, I think, when we take the time to appreciate something that we have had a hand in making or cultivating. There's this wonderfully satisfying mix of tiredness and contentment that we can experience after a huge spring clean and everything is where it should be. 
or that great feeling at the end of a huge project that's exceeded expectations, or that sense of satisfaction in those moments after you've been welcomed into the life of another person through generous listening. And friends, we live in a really strange moment right now when our capacity to work and to be in relationships is significantly disrupted. And even so, our vocation as humans remains the same. You know, the opening chapters of the Bible tell us that humans are made to enter into a rhythm of work and rest, a rhythm which brings good into the world, as well as meaning and contentment and satisfaction to us. And so as a church, we wanted to do this series on good stewards to continue to flesh out what it looks like for us to be God's family, living as disciples who bear witness to Jesus in this place and time. You know, a really critical piece to the puzzle is having greater clarity around what we should do with the resources and capacities and abilities that God has made us with and given us for this point in time. Actually, whether or not you even consider yourself a Christian, what you choose to do with your time and your treasures and your talents, it all stems out of what you believe to be true about yourself and others and the world and even what you believe to be true about God. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 makes the case that the role of humanity in the world is to be stewards of creation, using all of our time and talents and treasures to bring about the flourishing of all people and all things. So this afternoon, we'll look at these first two chapters of Genesis and we'll consider three things. The source of stewardship, the perspective of stewardship, and thirdly, the freedom of stewardship. The source, the perspective, and the freedom of stewardship. Let's get into the source. Now, the opening pages of the Bible give us the beginning of creation's story. We can think of the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2 as two perspectives of the same event. You know, Genesis 1 gives us this broad bird's eye view of creation. It gives us a vision of the God who is creator who speaks and it comes into being. He is powerful. He is authoritative. He is totally unlike his creation. But then Genesis 2 zooms in and gives us a glimpse of a God who is intricately involved in everything that he's made. God, the gardener, cultivates and orders and plants and waters creation. In Genesis 2.8, we see a God who forms humanity in the same way as a potter forms clay into a vessel of both beauty and function. You see, God is both the creator of Genesis 1 and the gardener of Genesis 2. He is both powerful and yet personal. He is both holy and near to us. And, you know, these accounts of creation were just as radical when they were first told as they are today in our cultural context. You know, the creation stories of the ancient Near East largely told two narratives. You know, the first was that creation was born out of cosmic strife between spiritual beings. And the second story, or the alternate story, was that the gods had created us purely to have their needs met. 
you know, and to these two narratives, Genesis 1 and 2 counters by revealing that creation is actually born out of the divine will of a God who is at perfect peace in himself. He is unrivaled. His rule is uncontested. He is perfectly self-sustaining and without need in himself. You know, the creation stories of the ancient Near East meant that humans were either the unfortunate byproducts of divine conflict or that we were created to be slaves to the divine. And instead of seeing humans this way, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that our existence is not some meaningless mishap. It's not an existence, an existence meant for oppressive servitude. No, humans and actually all creation was made by God with good intents and purposes. In the time that Genesis was written in the ancient Near East, the only humans who would dare claim to bear the image of the gods were kings who claimed divine authority and function, and they oppressively wielded this power over their subjects to satisfy both the gods and also themselves. But over and against this claim to unique status that these kings made, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that all, all humans were created in the image of God, formed with purpose and care. The humans weren't primarily created to somehow meet a need in God, but rather God himself from the very beginning feeds and nourishes humanity. God makes his image bearers with the intent that they would be stewards and partners in creating and caring for a world full of goodness. Every single human is crafted by God with the same dignity, worth, and authority. And this ought to be the cornerstone for any and every quest, every fight for human dignity. You know, those ancient kings who claimed to bear the image of a God, they claimed that they functioned as a representative of that God on earth. It was their role, they saw, to extend and express the authority and rule of that particular God over their particular domain. And when we think of what images of gods might look like today, our minds probably immediately jump to, to envisioning statues in temples or shrines. And these serve as physical signs of a particular God's presence and authority. And to deface or to, to vandalize any one of these images carries with it almost the same level of offensiveness as if you had done it to them directly. A more familiar concept to a, our secular culture might be the idea of a flag. And flags mark the presence and the authority of their identified groups or powers. Think of what the act of burning any particular flag means. It's an effectively, uh, it effectively represents a direct assault on the authority and dignity of the people the flag represents. And like these images, humans, as images of God, were made to be representatives of God's presence and authority in creation. But unlike these images, we aren't made to be static. No, we are made to work together to express and extend God's good rule over creation, using all the resources we have to this end. See, stewardship 
is simply cultivating and caring for something that's not your own. It's cultivating and caring for something that doesn't belong to you. Think of what you expect your super fund to do, right? Um, super funds exist to grow and to care for the money that we have entrusted to them. Their job is to steward what belongs to us. And from Genesis 1 and 2, we can see that this is clearly the case in creation, right? Everything is made by God. Everything belongs to God. And humans are made to be God's image bearers, to be his representatives in all creation. And God, being the good God that he is, he gives us all we need to nourish us for the work of cultivating and caring for the world that he's made. As we express and extend his gracious rule over all things. And you know, there ought to be a great sense of nobility and dignity that comes with this. This reality that all humans, regardless of race or gender or ability, they are all made to image God in this way. You see, the reference point, the, the source of all stewardship is God, the creator and the sovereign over all creation. So, if God is the source of all creation, and the source of everything actually that we've been given to steward, then what does it look like for us to live as images of God? Often in Christian circles, what's described in these chapters of Genesis is called the cultural mandate. It's this command of God for humans as image bearers to express and extend his good rule over creation, to cultivate it to its fullest potential. And if we look to chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, we read that humans are commanded to rule over all living creatures. They are told to fill the earth and subdue it. But our modern sensitivities might cause us to hear these verses with a degree of concern. After all, um, ruling and subduing both sound a little bit violent. And the original hearers of Genesis, actually, they knew oppression and slavery and abuse very well. It was very much a part of their story. And so it's really important for us to ask, what should good, faithful human rule over creation look like? And again, I want to point us to God as our reference point. After all, we are bearers of his image, his representatives in creation. And the way in which he exercises his authority and dominion over creation ought to shape the way that we do it too. You know, throughout all of Genesis 1, we see a God who not only sees the good of all that he's made, but we see a God who seeks the good of all that he's made too. Repeatedly, he blesses every single thing that he has made. And we see more of this in Genesis 2 as the camera zooms in. We see a God who cultivates a garden. He carefully plans it and plants it and waters it. He provides food and nourishes every living thing. And then he forms man out of the dust of the ground to work and to care for the good world that he's made. Notice the adjectives of the trees that God has made in chapter 2 verse 9. They were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And God makes things for beauty and enjoyment as well as function. 
And so when we get to verse 15 in chapter 2, we're told that God puts the man in the garden that he planted to work it and to take care of it. And now these two verbs, to work and to take care, these two are crucial in understanding our place as God's image bearers in creation. They describe how we as stewards should live in the world. The word for um, work has agricultural roots in the original Hebrew. It describes the act of tilling soil to produce a harvest. And humanity is given the work of taking the raw potential of creation and from it cultivating things and structures and societies of beauty and function which express and extend the goodness of God's world. And the verb translated as take care in our NIV Bibles, well, it gives us a glimpse or the image of a watchman diligently standing guard over a people or place. You know, this verb describes our responsibility as image bearers to protect and to preserve everything that God has made, to safeguard it from any potential threats towards flourishing. And so every sort of work, paid or unpaid, irrespective of where we might locate it within our social and economic structures, all work ought to carry the same degree of dignity that befits someone who bears the image of God. And so neurosurgeons and stay-at-home parents, um, teachers and high court judges, cleaners and CEOs, Uh, People with disabilities and elite athletes, all are given the same dignity and vocation in the eyes of God. And you see, the Christian steward lives his or her life from this place, with this perspective. Acknowledging that everything that we've been given is from God. And ultimately, everything belongs to God. Everything exists to contribute to and to ensure the flourishing of God's good world. And now you're probably sitting there listening to this and thinking, well, that's all well and good, John. If only things actually looked this way. If only humans actually lived seeking the good and the flourishing of all around them. Where did we go wrong? Well, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 2 point us to see exactly what happened here. Here God says to the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, you don't need to be a Christian to know where this story goes, right? The man and the woman in Genesis 3 that God had made, um, they both eat from the one tree that they're commanded not to. They break not only God's law as king, but they break his heart as father. But what does this have to do with the state of our world today? Well, actually, it helps to explain why we are the way we are. You see, the theme of God's rule and dominion runs throughout Genesis 1 and 2. God exercises his authority in creating all things. He creates humans to be image bearers who are entrusted with his authority and resources as they work and care for his good world. Now, if Genesis 1 and 2's claims about God are to be believed, if they're true, 
then Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree was committing rebellion against God's rightful and just rule over all things. They're also rebelling against the God who's only ever sought their good. But instead of God, they choose to place themselves on the throne and claim the kingdom as their own. And the lie from the serpent in Genesis 3 is the same lie that fuels our own rebellion today. It's this belief that God is holding out on us, that he's not going to give us what's best. And so we have to make sure that it happens for ourselves. And this rebellion, this sin, it turns us in on ourselves. We're no longer satisfied with being guardians. We actually, we want to be the, the definers of good and evil, especially when the things that we've built our identities upon are being threatened. And so we try to rule and subdue others by force. And we're no longer content to only be stewards. No, we want to own everything for ourselves, especially when life makes us feel as though all we have could be lost in a moment. And when we do this, when we live this way, as Paul says in Romans 1, we exchange the creator for the created. And instead of using all that's given to us for the flourishing of our world, we hoard it for ourselves, telling ourselves that if I can just have this or be that, then everything in my life will be okay and good. But we taste this bitter fruit of deathliness all throughout the world, don't we? On a global scale, there are wars and ecological disaster and there's poverty and there's really oppressive and dehumanizing systems of work. In our interpersonal relationships, we taste this too, right? There are relational fractures and there's bitterness and envy and even abuse. And internally, we taste this deathliness when we experience fear and anxiety and restlessness. You know, these days we can barely even see and appreciate beauty without having to forcefully possess it for ourselves somehow. Our rebellion has made us enemies of God. But more than this, it's unknowingly enslaved us to a kingdom of death and deathliness. And when we find ourselves in this place, we don't just need to have our priorities reordered and just get back to doing the right thing. You know, this isn't a case of, oh, we need to spend less time at work and more time with things that are more important, like family. No, our, our need in this moment runs, runs much deeper. We need to be saved from the kingdom of death. We need a saviour. You know, in Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus being both the perfect image of the invisible God and the Savior that we so desperately need. From verse 15 in Colossians 1, he says this of Jesus. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
you know, Jesus, the second person of the triune God, he was there at creation. Through him and for him, all things were made. He is the God whose image we were made to faithfully bear. But our rejection and our rebellion of him makes us his enemies. But Jesus not only embodied everything that we should be through his life, but rather, but also his perfect work brings peace and flourishing again into God's good world. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, at the cross, Jesus, the perfect image of God, was defaced and dishonored. At the cross, the fullness of God imaged and enfleshed in Jesus was scourged beyond recognition. All so that rebels like us could be reconciled to the one whose image we were made to bear. And friends, when we can see and trust and know peace with God through the cross, then we can finally be free to live as stewards of all that God has made and given. So what does the cross have to do with how we live today? Well, the cross gives us peace with God. By the cross, we are reconciled with the king through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are saved from the kingdom of death and brought into the kingdom of life by faith. And when we live under God's good kingly rule, when we live as reconciled image bearers, then the priority and the reference point of our lives is shifted and God holds the greatest allegiance and affection of our lives. And so we are free to live acknowledging that God is the source of everything because he is the creator. And we also honor God as the owner of everything because he is king. Everything that we have has been entrusted to us to steward, even when our resources and capacities and abilities are significantly hampered by circumstances. <laughs> maybe even a global pandemic, we can still live in the truth that everything, even our limitations, have been given as boundaries for our stewardship in this moment. And you know, there's a freedom that comes from living in this truth. You know, in, all, uh, in most of the world religions, there's this idea, this instinct that the road to freedom comes through distancing ourselves from material things, you know, have less or have nothing and remove suffering, or so the thought goes. And minimalism is kind of a secular version of this, right? At its extreme, it's non-attachment as the road to a very particular enlightenment. But you know what? The Christian sees things differently. Because of the cross, we can be certain that God withholds nothing good from us. Everything that's been given to us has been given by a God who is good. 
And so stewards under God can trust that what they have, and even what they don't have, these things have nothing to do with their ultimate worth, because we all bear the same image, and we're all reconciled by the same cross. And a reconciled steward doesn't remove every material attachment from their lives, but rather they are free to hold every ounce of energy, every minute of time, every relationship, every resource with an open hand, knowing that God is about the flourishing of all that he's made. And the good that is ours can never be taken away. And so as stewards... We are free to put our hands to the plough, using every skill and capacity and opportunity that we've been entrusted to express and extend God's good rule in creation. And this isn't limited to the realm of the workplace either. Every place where God's people are, there's a call for us to steward what God has made and given. And the way in which humanity is brought into the flourishing of the kingdom is first by being saved into the kingdom. And so for followers of Jesus then, we ought to place a special emphasis on using all that we've been entrusted to extend God's kingdom by making him known. You know, and when we can live this way, A.W. Tozer calls it the freedom of owning nothing. It's the freedom in knowing that nothing really belongs to me. That actually things do not define me, but rather by the cross, I'm freed to be who I was always made to be. A person who bears the image of God, a person who's satisfied in him, and a person who stewards all that he's given for his purposes. So friends, what has God entrusted to you? Where are the opportunities and resources and limitations in your life? And how might these be used to contribute to the goodness of God's world?